0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Joining the Threads podcast. It's Susie Netticott-Watson here, and the podcast is brought to you by Two Green Threads, made possible because of the support from the Foundation of National Parks and Wildlife and the International Fund for Animal Welfare. This episode is the start of a regular format of episodes where we connect with a wildlife volunteer and have a chat about their wildlife volunteer journey, wherever those threads of conversation end up taking us. There is something about hearing someone else's talk, someone else talk about their story which builds on kinship and community. At least that's the way I like to express and think about it. It's a central theme of Two Green Threads, this fact that we're not alone. We're not doing this alone. We're not doing this wildlife volunteer journey alone. And sometimes hearing a window into what or why we undertake this volunteer role looks to build stronger connections with us all. So I wanted to introduce to you our very special guest on today's Joining the Threads episode, Denise Morgan. Denise is a wildlife volunteer on the southern tablelands of New South Wales, and she and I often share a conversation about whether we're making the right decision in the care and rescue of our wildlife, and I've been very grateful to have her in my space, a colleague to talk through what are sometimes difficult decisions about supporting our wildlife or even sometimes simply to debrief. So thank you so much for joining
1: us this morning, Denise. Thank you, Susie, for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure yeah. to talk. <laughs> um, so
0: when we are chatting without an audience sort of seeing us, I feel sometimes we should describe a bit of a starting context. So to let you know, I'm sitting looking out the window and I have to say the wind has started and it's one of those horrible hot winds. And um, I'm really hoping that none of this is going to come through in this episode recording today but I have to admit that I've just walked up from the bottom of our property and we live on the side of a very steep hill and I'm feeling quite hot and bothered so um, I'm trying I've just had to go down and check the wallabies that I moved yesterday and um, you know how hey, you're just feeling all sticky and hot so I'm hoping that that doesn't come through and I don't take that out in any way shape or form on you Denise because we normally have fantastic <laughs>
1: <laughs> what about yourself what's going on Right. Okay. It's also windy here. I'm also on the top of the hill. I'm just looking out now and the, and the wind's building up. And I've, um, this morning I've been down to check on some Wallaroos that I released a couple of weeks ago um, and just to see how they're doing because, as you know, they hate the wind. And this is the first time they've been to their own devices, I guess, and there's been some stormy and some windy weather lately. But they are fine. They're coming back into the run um to sit to sit around during the day as is their old habit and they've brought a friend with them there's a <laughs> young male wallaroo with them that I had noticed um for some some months actually and I think that he'd lost his mother but he was too too big to bring into care but still really needed I think to be with her for company and at first I thought he was my Jasper who'd escaped but um because he's the same size and the same looking animal as Jazz but he's not because I've seen them both together now and I feel good about mine going and good about the service they're doing to a possible and probable orphan out there. So that's nice thing.
0: It's mm. a lovely connection story, isn't it, just to show how they build their own relationship. Mm. Yeah. Do. yeah. One of the things I thought we'd start with is where your wildlife journey began as a wildlife volunteer. What's your sort of starting picture and context
1: Well, I I think it's one of those things. I started when I retired, so pretty late in life. But it's probably been building up, always been there in my life because I've always had animals in my life. Even before preschool, we had dogs and chooks and things around me at home. And then um, as I was growing, I had dogs. And then when I had my son, who's not, as interested in animals as, as I would have thought, given all my influence. Um, <laughs> he doesn't dislike them, but he's not obsessed. Um, so I had a lot of animals, really, in hindsight, on his behalf. <laughs> so I had... Um, in the hope that he would grow it. Is that what you were thinking? You no, know, something. I think that's probably being generous. Probably they were for me, after all. And um, so I had ducklings from eggs and frogs from, from spawn, um, and all of them lived. So I ruined the ecology of Small Country Creek, I think, because every single one of those little dots lived, and I think they're only supposed to be one in a 100 who lived, Um, and mice and goldfish and hermit crab, and I think all of that too. So really I'm used to being around animals, but thinking about them more as domestic pets, even the ones from the wild, probably treated as domestic pets. It was only when... um, a colleague of mine came into work and she had some orphan pof- possums in care. And I started to understand that perhaps that was an option for me, um, especially as retirement was coming up. It was something that I could do, I would have the time to do, and I wanted to do. Um, but I still really didn't understand the difference between wild animals and um, domestic animals. And I was still making that domestic analogy.
0: So would you describe yourself as naive?
1: Would that be the sort of description? Yeah. 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 I, saw th- I was lived, lived in Canberra. I lived in the city. Um, I honestly didn't know about the cull of kangaroos. That's how out of touch I was with what was going on. Um, I lived where I could see animals around me, um, but I didn't really think about them in their own context, the own troubles, that, the troubles they were having, really. They were just really in my environment. Um, and it was only I saw these possums in care, but then we came out to a property out near Yass, where, where I am now. And then I had the time and I thought it's something I can do. I was, doing, I was also doing um, university at the same time. I left work and went back to uni. So I was doing that as well. And so I joined Wires initially and, then, and did some training with them and then joined Wildcare because it was more local. Uh, that was the only reason I still have friends in wires and, and do a lot of work with wires, especially um, with bats uh, when I have them in care. Um, then I did some courses because I don't like going in completely without knowledge and, and did some research into the various species, more from a, from a scientific point of view, just about their, all their life, life cycle and so forth.
0: So, what about when you you started? Like, in terms of mm -hmm. um, you know going to that sort of first course, did you have a sense of you know I've got choices about how much I want to get involved or what I want to do, or I might care or I might answer the phones? Did you get a were you sort of deliberate? I actually think I'm going to do this.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's why I went to why actually I went to Wollongong and stayed with my brother in law because uh, Wildcare didn't have a course soon enough (laughs) so once I decide to do something like I'm out looking for how I can do it now yeah so as as for did I know I had a choice yes they read those things out to me (laughs) but I knew that I was going to just go in feet first and see see what happened and that's that's what happened really yeah so I I took I took two joeys. I was in wild care and, and had two joeys, Billy and Tallulah. They were my first two. Kangaroo joeys. Um, kangaroo joeys, yeah, Eastern Grey kangaroo joeys, yeah. Um, but I didn't have anything else except the house, so they were in the house, and and then I would take them for walks, and then I understood that I needed a run. So at first we we built infrastructure in front of the animal, really, just as we needed yeah. it. It was yeah. just as, as we, as, I, I guess, everyone. Well, most people do it like that way. But I started to take more eastern greys um, because they're our biggest client and, and, you, and I think you need a few to go together. Yeah. Um, for little, little mob for their psychological well-being as a mob animal, the same as you would do for flying foxes mostly. They're, they're the two um, the biggest ones that need each other. And then it escalated as these things do. Um, I started to take other species. And because I had, because I had the time, I had the space, um, had, had enough money to pay for things and to pay for vet bills that started to come up and the petrol that's required to run around all the time. And the feed costs. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The, the milk is ex- more expensive than you would think. And, yes, it, it costs a lot of money when you start to, to do it um, in yeah it's, to it, it's to do it. yeah it's best not to get it doing yeah it's best not I worked it out once and then decided never never to mention it again really yeah. <laughs> so um, so but that's but that's how I am i think people do, people don't have to do that necessarily you can do as much as you, as you want but at that particular time i wanted to do a lot and so it was full on but I think part of, I
0: mean, part of the sort of thread of this conversation given where Two Green Threads comes from, which is talking about the people side of looking after the animals, it's one of those mm-hmm. things you can do as much or as little as you want. But I've got to say sometimes it's hard to work out what your boundary is really, isn't it?
1: It is. It is very much. It's, I think it's a personality type, but there's also a, an amount of pressure n- not only from the sheer number of animals that come in but the knowledge that they're there at all. Mm. And so you start to push and push push out until um, perhaps you shouldn't. And so I think that's where the the problems come in. And also, too, that as it went along, I started to realise that, um, especially when I was doing phone roster, because I did that for for 12 hours a week for some time, that we didn't have enough people to euthanise animals. We didn't have enough shooters out in this area. So then um, my husband, who was... um, Shooter, just target shooter, um, or had been a target shooter. That I couldn't have a household where someone was going unused like that. So um, he, he, I convinced him to to do the wild care course and to get his permit, and he became a shooter and a rescuer for wild care. So it was a family thing then. So there was it was all encompassing. And we should we I should explain.
0: I should explain, mm. Denise, because I think um, there's potential audience people that may not understand the wildlife world. We've often sure. tried to work out a better name for shooter. We haven't quite worked out what it is. But what we mean is people that have um, our volunteers that are able to, because we're in a very large rural area, and um, they're able to go out and euthanise an animal by the side of the road, usually an adult, that um, is unable to be rescued and brought into care and needs to be euthanised. So that's our short-term word for shooter that's what we mean by that just to explain Mm -hmm. to the audience so you're picking up on um you know you you fell into being a carer if you like obviously there are a lot of other roles but you fell into being a wildlife carer for particular species was was the eastern grey your heart captured species was that the one that sort of got you
1: it certainly was at first because i think i think because they are a social animal they're they're quite interactive and they're adorable, and and they're very dependent on on the carer as well because they're used to having mum and aunts and and everyone around. They're used to having a mob around them, so they become quite dependent on the carer. And I and it's that vulnerability that is heart wrenching for me. And I guess they they probably were the first first ones, but I think. Um, I don't think that there's any species that hasn't captured my heart, quite frankly. As um, as on I go, I can pick, I can make an argument for all of them, and you know the wombats are just adorable and they're little because they're so funny and they're so playful, and um, all the other macropods as well, in their own way, um, and cute little possums. So all of them, I think. But I think the one later on, and only had the last, I think, three years, maybe, would be. Um, would be the flying fox because it's captured my interest as well as my heart. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that combination would, would make me name them, I suppose. And it it's that it's not there's a lot of research on them, which I like, and I like to read the scientific side of things. But what the scientists don't have uh, and what the bat bat community does seem to have is an interaction between the carers and the scientists um, which is a good thing because the scientists don't think the same way at all, and but it's nice for carers to have some input about what bats actually do um, so, and it's just how they how they go about their lives, which is very useful. And I, I, I've loved them so much that, as you know, I went on a trip to Africa to to look at them last year, um, just before the pandemic. We went to Zambia to look at or to, to observe. Um, in the hot African summer, which you have to be really dedicated to do that, I think, to, to look at a fly-out of flying foxes, which I'd seen in Australia and I'd seen a few thousand perhaps fly-out and oh, I thought that was spectacular. What does that look like There's, in the sky? Does it just make it black or how does that, what does it come out as? Totally, totally black, yeah. yeah. Well, you watch them... Um, there were 10 million they estimated in Zambia it's the largest mammal migration on the planet and they come from other countries to a few hectares of roost tree and fly out that six weeks of the year towards the end of the year for a local fruit that they want and so 10 million of them gather um, in quite a small space so what you do is um, the BBC who film everything on the planet had built some hides so they're tall towers that you can climb up so you can go above above the trees, watch the bats as they start to mill about in the trees as they're getting prepared to fly out and then watch them fly into the sky. And they all go different directions because they go, they're, they're very individual animals, um, each for itself, very nomadic and individual, and they don't form close relationships with each other. And they all go in different directions, looking for food. So it is one of the world's great spectacles, to my mind, anyway.
0: So when you're when you're observing what must have been absolutely an unbelievable experience, how, how are you are you mind mapping anything back to Australian context about what it means you're seeing or what what we have, or how do you sort of relate that
1: to what you're then seeing when you get back home? What I see at home is not enough bats right. <laughs> after you've seen that many bats. Um, and that many bats used to be in the world. We know that. And they used to be in Australia. People used to speak um, in old journals of the sky being black with bats and it just doesn't happen anymore. And that's the reality of the world Yeah. a lot of species. So it, it made me very, very conscious of how they, they, they're not exactly protected in Zambia. They're just hard to get at. Um, and I, the local people do eat them, but um, not in great numbers to make a conservation difference. And it just they're quite remote and quite difficult and people don't have such an interest. And most of the people who were there were not tourists. They were mostly, which I can't explain, but mostly researchers and people making documentaries about the, the bats because of the sheer weight of the experience. When when we came back, we went up to the Daintree tree in March this year, just before they closed the borders, to see, um, and qu- quite by chance, by a set of circumstances, I won't go into, but I had, wasn't intending to do that, but we ended up on a small boat with a bat carer to watch the fly out of the spectacled flying foxes and the little red flying foxes who were in at that point. And there were half a million little reds, and that's pretty spectacular in itself. Oh, yeah. As well. yep. Yep. And the thing about the danger. Damped- yeah the good thing about the Daintree, they're not putting the bridge across the river, and that was i think that's a a change in Australian thinking because that's a main road, and we always go for roads and easiest ways. We don't put in another ferry and they're going to put in another ferry, and they're doing that because of the daintree itself because of the um the, the um the, the the delicacy is that the right word i guess of yep. the de- environment there. Fragility yeah. of the environment there, yeah. yeah, and so I guess there's a tourist element too. But there's the crocodiles there that have taken 40 years to come back because of the big killing spree 40 years ago, and there's, there's bats there as well. And there's lots of people buying up the land there at the moment. Um, they're crowdfunded, and I've bought you know probably a few square feet of the Daintree Forest. <laughs> um, people are buying it back to keep it like that, so yeah, oh, it was it made that, that- me. I was there, it made me think of Australia. But then when I was back in Australia, Australia looked in that particular spot okay. Okay. Progress, I think.
0: So one of the joys Um, I get from talking to you, Denise, is I have to say because I don't care for bats, and you often sprinkle my world with some amazing facts that you've discovered Mm. because you and I share a love of reading a lot about mm. species and, you know, understanding why and what they do. Um, so
1: what's, what's, mm. what's
0: the latest bit of info that you can share with me that you've been reading about?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's been a, a big study done by um, Justin and who's um, in the University of Western Sydney and I think it's in concert with one of his PhD students but they've done a study of three species of the flying fox all over Australia and they've looked at 755 roosts which is a huge project and it's taken a few years to do. What's a roost? roost had- that's where they, they settle it's not where they feed it's where they sleep. Right. Trees, it's true trees trees or groups of trees it's where they sleep at night. Um, it's where they're making all the noise and cooing on the ground that people complain about. Um, it's usually in a few trees and there's usually they bunch they love being together even though they're not particularly, particularly um, bonded to each other. They're bonded to the fact there are a lot of each other, if that makes any sense. <laughs> and I guess it's a form of protection because they are predated from the air by um, raptors and by um, pythons from the ground. So I guess there's safety in numbers there. And so those roosts are just where they're sleeping at night. So they've tracked them from where they sleep at night and they have from 755 of these places, and they've found that the individuals they've tracked have gone between 1,400 and nearly 2,000 kilometres each annually. Ah. The 1,400 was the lowest. And there's little uniformity in their direction. Um, There's little fidelity to the roost, so they're not going to the same roosts all the time. Um, So they, the ultimate nomads, and they're also the key... Seed and pollen um, produces or disperses in the forest ecosystem. So, because we have fragmented our environment, they're the only ones who can take pollen and seeds from one fragment to another because they're heavy enough, they're big enough to do that. Um, And they're big enough to carry a piece of fruit and then drop the seed. And so, the implications for that is that when we disrupt them somewhere, like they're doing in cans constantly, and disrupting them and, and dispersing them from the pre- preferred roost, what implication does that have for the whole of Australia? And we mm. don't know, mm. but it's yes, there might be one because if you affect them somewhere, it just travels everywhere, it just goes out like little filaments, like your green threads, it goes <laughs> everywhere. But you didn't understand the implications of it, and that's as far as the study can. Just, just to warn. To one, I think that we need a national strategy and not just a council-level strategy about roosts that are annoying people. So that's what we want The, the
0: interesting thing for that is that it's such a reminder, which I think we all inherently know, especially those of us that have a really strong affinity to wildlife and nature and environment, and that is everything is interconnected. You know, there's sort of... Um, you know web that it all is you know something like this shows up you know across thousands of kilometers and 755 roofs. i mean it's all it's all part of the story about how it relies on you know one animal dropping a seed for a tree to grow to then feed this to then you know become this eventually and yeah it's it's a pretty good reminder for that
1: it is. I had, I had some magnets sort of made up. I, at the moment, they're sort of saying, I think after the bushfires about the koalas, they're saying, no tree, no me. Well, mine was, no me, no tree. Ah, oh, that's, yeah, no yep. Trees. Yep. yeah. So it starts, that shows, yeah, with, um, in the koala.
0: Koalas were,
1: no tree, no me. No, tree, no me. And yep. bats are, no me, no tree. Ooh. That's good. And forest disperses, yeah, because they their preferred food is blossom from the eucalyptus, natural blossom, not, not the orchards. It's only when their habitat's been destroyed that they go for the, the exotic fruits and things. Otherwise they prefer... Eat the natural food as as all natural animal nature native animals do. So.
0: But you also do apart from flying foxes, you do micro bats, which is another you know mm. fascinating insight for me that doesn't do bats in terms of the
1: scale of what you deal with. So, just describe a yeah. micro bat size. Well, the littlest ones we have, and the ones we get in a lot, are little forest bats, and they'll be the last one I got in um, was three point nine grams. So they're very small. Describe that in the size of your finger. Probably, probably as long as the first joint or not quite as long as the first joint of my first finger, I guess. Yeah. They're very light. because The bones are very light too. I mean, the count in that, obviously, is their, their wingspan. When they spread their wings, they look a lot bigger, but their, their wings are just you know, like birds, very, very light. And um, they're, they're not some of those. They're completely different from flying foxes, except for the fact they're bats and their wings are leathery because they eat different things. They eat insects and not fruit. Um, and there's so many species of them. that uh, they, There are 200, I think, at least in Australia, 200 different sorts of microbats. And we get those in, and they are completely not nomadic. They have family structure. They have um, a rich social life. They have a language so, um, or a local dialect. So if we take one into care, it has to go back. Where it, was, it came from, because otherwise it won't um, it won't be able to talk to any other bats if you release it. Um, it's it's interesting. Taronga have come up with a with a, with a phrase for it that the bats they take in there when they're pups when they're tiny and haven't had a chance to learn a language they learn to talk Toronga trash, <laughs> which is a combination <laughs> of all, all the languages, and they're they're really not releasable when that happens. Wow. Yeah, so I, I have those, and I've got a, an Avery that I can um, get some fit in. So I get them from other I get them from other groups. I get them from wires to exercise before they're they're let out. Because if we've kept them in all winter, because there aren't any insects, um, so they'd starve if we let them go, and they'd go into torpor and, and die. Um, we keep them over winter, so they're not fit by the time you know they're ready for release in about November. So I um, exercise them. In, in the aviary which is that's a joy that's um stand in the aviary at night and have the the little bats buzzing around and they never hit you because they eco-locate and you can just stand there and they just flip all around you and buzz around you and talk to each other and it's lovely absolutely
0: lovely so what what we healthy have, what we've just done um denise which i think is a completely natural conversation that happens between wildlife volunteers is that we have spent time talking about animals, which is completely normal and is the space that we like to discuss. And I guess um, you've just prompted me with your description of what it's like to stand in your aviary at night. But it's one of these parts that Two Grain Threads is trying to build a stronger normalising message. And that is, it's okay to also talk about the people side of wildlife caring and what it means to us and how we feel. So would you mind... If I asked you, and you've actually just given us a hint on one of them, what are the bits of your wildlife volunteer Mm. journey that give you a jolt of joy or moments that give, as I like to call
1: them? (laughs) I think um, it's a sight of a healthy, released animal, preferably with a baby. (laughs) <laughs> so that you know that you've released something um, that can reproduce and it's settled into the natural world again, especially if they've been severely compromised when they've come in. So that's um, that gives me gives me pleasure, um, and with that all, also goes. And I think we don't talk about this enough because it sounds selfish, but it's self satisfaction in the best sense. That mm. um, you've done something that's that's good and you feel good for having done that. Um if it if it's all turned out well often it doesn't. But I think um it can be fun and it can be satisfying and it's still still okay to to take pleasure from that. And I think sometimes we think if it's if it's fun then it's, you know, hasn't been an effort enough. But it certainly is an effort enough.
0: Um, well and also and though is, I think it's part of the um it's our connection to our environment and so you have this you know state of um you know privilege and gratefulness that you've been able to play a part in what you get to see as an exceptionally complex and interwoven and deep and strong uh you know environmental ecosystem and you've sort of like it's like you've sort of being a, a visit pass you know to to participate in that process and I think it's it's funny you describe it as selfish because I think often we live in a um you know self-care or self-sustainability as I often call it space where you know that's part of our internal dialogue is selfish and in a similar way you know we often and you know have times that we want to talk about or should talk about compassion fatigue which gets mentioned as part of the potential first responder role of wildlife volunteers but what we don't talk about enough is the compassion satisfaction Mm. you know so what you're talking about is that you know there are outlets that you do get to participate in and see which are and you know they should be held and hugged and remembered and shared with one another because that's where we can get some
1: shared joy out of it too. Indeed I think um, and and the, the fun and satisfaction, um, I don't know how much time we've got, but I you know my husband, Peter, he's, one of his stories he's probably told you is is the releasing of the myotis fishing bats on the Sydney Harbour. Um, and that was they'd come into care. They were on a small boat and they were found hanging in the daytime on a small boat um, that had come into Lavender Bay. And the owner knew where he'd been all night and he knew that's where they must have landed just before dawn and they had to be taken back. But they were compromised, and so they had to come into care, and so and they came into care with a friend from Wires. And so when it was time to be released, Peter hooked up his boat in Yass, took it up to Bob and Head, picked them up on the way, and the bats on the way. Took it up to Bob and Head, put the boat in the water, out toward the heads. Went too far, almost went through the heads. Came back in this tiny tinny, and then waited and waited, and for the night to come and and release these little fishing bats, and they went beautifully, and then. Toddled home in the dark in the boat and hooked it up again and then came home, had the best time. <laughs> and he was just he was just full of how much fun it was and how satisfying it was to see these little creatures, you know, just fly off so well and so, you know, into into the into the night. And the uh, moments, moments like that.
0: They're the moments that keep us going, isn't it? Doing this role, you know, those moments yeah. and you string them it's, together.
1: And you're right, because because if we didn't know about these animals, we wouldn't know what intervention was appropriate. And I, and I often sit there and think, if I didn't know this, I wouldn't have been able to do this. And, and just to, to be something in their cycle that is appropriate and intervene mm-hmm. at the right time and know when, to, know when to step away and know how to take them forward. That's, I get a kick out of that too. I, and that's, I feel like part of the natural cycle when I'm able to do that as well.
0: So, does your bucket ever run dry?
1: Does that phrase mean something to you, Anna? Yeah. Denise, yeah, it does now, Susie. <laughs> it does. Um, I now I know I have a bucket, and so wildlife caring certainly taught me that I do have in, not infinite resources. Um, and I certainly have been times, and I've been really down and going, just going through the motions, and not getting enough um, joy out of it, um, and. There have been times when it easily brought to tears, um, cranky, um, feeling helpless and inadequate because, um, because I, like most wildlife carers, I, I don't have the medical training that sometimes you actually do need to address an injury or a disease. Um, so often feeling at the edge of my comfort zone or beyond my comfort zone. But I, but I did find as time went on that, I built up a network of people who could support me, but there have been times when I thought, "Yeah, I'm just not up for this." You know, what what do I think I'm doing? What hubris do I have? Do I think that I can help this animal? But um, just by I think by learning and 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 having good relationship with the vets and and other people, um, I think I've come back, overcome that, and and dropping back on um, the number of animals is always a good idea as well.
0: I think you sometimes have to find your natural boundary. I mean, that's where you sort of take on and take on and take on and then eventually you go, you know what, I can't do this many. I can't deliver the level of care that I want or, um, you know, this is not a space that is sustainable for my relationship or, you know. So there is a sort of space where you've got to almost find it yourself. Um, It isn't necessarily what someone else can tell you, but it is okay to find that boundary and to work out that you can, have a life where you're assisting wildlife and also, you know, having good home life, a good relationship or, you know, every now and again connecting socially with other people that gives you what, you know, I guess is ref- refilling your bucket really. It's giving you that energy back um, so that you can keep doing the role if that's what you want to do. I mean, it, it, what is it that keeps you going? You talked about, you know, a few things in terms of potential people you talk to or having good vets or well, what what would you say that keeps you going?
1: Well sometimes trying, we're, trying to, we're just discussing with other carers, you know, particularly those with more experience and people with medical training. I, I found, um, well, I found Facebook a fabulous tool for this, especially in, in the bat caring areas, because you have closed Facebook groups and people who are on it are people who are, you know, the vet from Australia Zoo or somebody from Taronga, and you've got help you know from from experts and it's a very kind environment nobody you know criticizes each other it's it's excellent so i found being part of that environment is very good and i just found it particularly good for both microbats and flying foxes in particular macropods to a lesser extent i have to say but still still pretty good um and i find that More knowledge makes me feel more comfortable. I suppose that's a bit trite, but I find if I do talk to people, or I do do some research, or 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 another advanced course in something, I feel more comfortable about it.
0: But I think that description you just gave, Denise, answers what would have been, you know, me trying to bring us back to the people side every now and again because we fall naturally into the animal side. So what I was hearing is, you know, that knowledge helps you. With the animal, but what's the connection with you as a person, and what that does? But that's where you said knowledge, and I don't think it's tried. Mm. I mean, knowledge does build. You know, it lessens anxiety, it lessens the feeling of helplessness, it it lessens the, um, you know, you don't know the problems solving opportunities that you have if you don't know the knowledge. So I think, I think that's a really nice way to show that you know, although you might be building knowledge about the animal, from a wildlife volunteer journey point of view as a person, um, there's part of that that's still inter- interwoven into that. And, I, you know, I think that's where, you know, one of your strategies I'd, I'd say from, well, knowing you, but also just from the conversation we just had, and it's mine as well, is I seek knowledge as a coping strategy. Mm. Um, to try and work yes. out, you know, yeah. to become more comfortable with what it is that I'm doing because it is, you know, relatively specialised yeah. in the sense that there's not a, a easy book that you can always grab and read about 101, you know, what to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you had to yeah. mention to a new carer um, what this yeah. whole journey was like, where would you even start, and is it possible to explain to people without them experiencing it what it's like to be a wildlife volunteer and what they're potentially going to go through? do you reckon
1: Ah uh, potentially it's like all things um, yeah it's its if you knew what it was like would would you have done it um like all things it, you don't look at everything as a whole because it's too much, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and all things worth doing are over are very complicated and have the potential to overwhelm. so I think the thing is not not to not to not say to warn people but not to be too negative about things because even as even if you're in experienced wildlife care, it's possible to be overwhelmed, so that right. never goes away, so mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think you need to i tell them about the privilege and getting excited and how, how good it is to be close to the natural world um, and the insight that most people don't get to the natural world, including scientists. We are in that position where we know the animal. We, we know how it thinks and how it will behave from an observation point of view that we don't often have time to write down. But, but I'd also say to pace, pace yourself Learn to say no, even when you feel like you're the only person because you shouldn't be the only person who can do everything. And not to let go of the, those parts of yourself that you start with, the things that you're really competent in, <clears throat> maybe the things that you have qualifications in or other hobbies that you're really good at, because that feeling of competence and well-being will be needed <laughs> um, when you don't feel so competent in the wildlife caring so I think nurturing the things where you start strong um, will help you be strong in in caring for wildlife, um, if that's possible. In my 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 life, I've got qualifications in 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 art and, and literature, so I tend to go to that because I think I can do that. I can talk about that. I know that, and so I comfort myself with those things, um, especially when I'm feeling like incompetent if if an animal's just died for example all the self-flagellation that goes on there so I just I find it helpful um I think every time you can sorry Janice
0: you go
1: no no that was right the 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 internet became unstable then that's why I trailed off but I think it's back again so you go Suze um I was going to say
0: I think it's about perspective sometimes. Like one of the things that it's a little mm. bit easy to do, particularly when you start from a place where you have had you know other lives and other interests and you know strong relationships and a social life and all sorts of stuff and then you start on your wildlife um, volunteer journey and depending on what roles you do and how much you take on there is a potential for it to narrow your world because you know you're not able to go out as often and you know some of the roles that we're doing we're rurally based so we're not Mm -hmm. as easily able to interact with people and I think the It's a good message that you give in in the sense of maintain some of your other being because that to some extent gives you a little bit of a space every now and again of perspective. And I'm not saying that needs to override that it might be a really um, sad time that you're having or you've had some difficult circumstances, but if your entire life sometimes is built Hmm. around everything wildlife, it, it just... Every, everything you look and see becomes connected and, and in your difficult moments becomes mm. a, a difficult space, I guess. I don't know. Maybe that's a reasonable description, but I, I think that's a good message and it's one, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah because it's self-referential if, you've got, if you're not doing anything else and um, you don't have the strength to, to break out of that. And if you haven't maintained any contacts, even not even but certainly with other people, But even with your own self, which is a shifting thing, I know, but those parts of yourself where you felt safe and comfortable, you Mm. need to keep in touch with those parts of yourself as well.
0: Yeah, like you said, and often that is the place where you know something about, that you have you can, you know, feel that you've mm. got a level of master mastery, if that's the word, and, you know, um, yeah, background on. So if you wouldn't mind, in terms of the interest of time, I know we could talk forever, but one of the things I wanted mm. to wrap up with is, yeah. um, and you and I talk about it actually quite a lot, and, you know, the last year has certainly sort of shaken mm. our sense of hope and you know future looking for our environment and you know we you and i have shared a number of conversations around bushfires and particularly given your previous experience in that space it, wh- where where's hope for you what do you what what lifts you what you know lifts um your head up basically and you can look up and look forward well i think um
1: the same, the same as just that just occurred to me. The same as I sort of did before when I lost everything in the fires in Canberra, is um, just look at how it made things better, which is sometimes a bit hard. But things, that, if I if that hadn't happened to me, I wouldn't have done those whole set of things that brought me here. Um, so I think of it like that sometimes, and I try to put the losses in perspective. Um, I think with the, bush, the bushfires this time, I think that the takeaway I have, it's Im- impossible to put a good slant on those dead animals. There's so many of them. There's no good slant for that. But I think the emotional response to the extent of the animal life lost in the bushfires and that link to climate change, not just to the ordinary mainstream Australians, but to people all over the world, And you've got people like David Attenborough and liked celebrities reinforcing that loss and how precious these animals are and how precious this environment is. So as we know, um, change is not driven by facts as it should be. It's driven by emotion. So this time we've got it the right order. So if emotion runs out in front and the facts follow, then I think that's quite hopeful. I think that's more hopeful than we have been or I can remember. The environment and the animals being and also the acknowledgement of the wildlife sector now that's probably just repeating myself a bit but also um, it's something that government will be hard pressed to ignore and it has become mainstream to care about them rather than mainstream to disregard them which i think it has been for most of australia's history and also um, and there's money to do something about it which is always helpful so that that's I think is is the hopefulness from that. I think it's a bad situation, but I think it's not as bad as it might have been a few years ago i think
0: yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting that's, that's combination where the the people side seems to be catching up, if you like, with what a, a lot of um, us in the sort of front line Um, you know either affinity to the environment or working in that sort of space of wildlife have been in for a while but it's sort of like um, in a way the rest of the population has now experienced some of that emotion through you know what they were seeing and the scale of what was happening so yeah I think there's there has been a a little bit of a shift which hopefully will continue to mean Mm. things like you know Daintree river bridges aren't made and ferries are put on instead and a slightly different outlook but it's Mm. i appreciate the fact that you know sometimes you have to be in a space of safety and you know personal sort of um i don't know what the right term would be but a sort of psychological and emotional space where you're able to appreciate those facts and you know some people might not be there yet because we're all on a different recovery journey and it, I think it's. I think this is where the opportunity to, you know, talk with you, Janice, and I really, really appreciate your openness and honesty, and having, you know, what feels like a conversation with me, but obviously, you know, goes to the world, um, to share, you know, where we see some of this going, but also just that it's like a sort of. I often think sometimes that we get to live in a space of individuality. We get to have connections with an individual animal. But it's what I I have a phrase, I think it came from a song actually, The Big Picture in a Small Frame. And mm-hmm. we often get to see our wildlife as a small frame through our individual animals, but it connects us to the bigger picture of what's going on. And you know, I think that's where sometimes we flip between the two. So sometimes what we're seeing or experiencing or, you know, our recovery journey can focus on the, you know, the individual animals around us that are lost or the environment. And sometimes we then are also able to, you know, think what um, you talked about, which is that, you know, bigger picture about what it means and what might change and where it might be going. So um, I guess we have to, I'm never quite sure sometimes how to end a really genuine conversation with someone, but in terms of sort of wrapping up, is there anything else that you wanted to cover off about the wildlife care journey that we didn't get to touch on?
1: No, I hope I haven't been too negative. I think I have tried to be as honest as I hope possible. You've because been I, negative. What, what makes you think is, you've been negative? I do You don't I don't want to discourage people um, because it is it is such a worthwhile thing. I mean, anyone who who ventures into this world of of wildlife caring, you know, is in for a real treat most of the time. And also that the, the, they are making a difference. And I th- think the difference is not that, I mean, I think during, during the loss of the animals last year and this year, I mean, sort of you clutch your nearest kangaroo and say, I will protect you with my life. And so that's, that's that feeling of, my God, we're going to lose everything. But it is that personal connection through one animal. But as you say, through that animal is a sense of the of the mob. And I think that um, I think it's it's good to think about the individual and, and the wider picture at the same time, and to value all animals the same. I mean, there are some that are that are um, in danger of extinction, and a lot of other other people are looking at that um, as well. I don't I don't think. How do I say that? I, don't, I think it's our job to look at that as well. But I, I'm also I'm also very conscious of keeping the ones that we think are plentiful, but so are the others. Yeah, once we have to cherish what we've got. I don't wanna be clutching things back from the edge. I I just I get irritated by that. That you know, we drive things to the brink and then try and snatch them back. And I, I think we just don't let them get anywhere near the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank
0: you, Denise. I very, very much appreciate um, the time and space that we've had here today. And I honestly don't think you've been negative. I think part of where Two Going Threads is this coming from is to try and give a sense of reality and normalisation to the wildlife journey experience that we have together. And, you know, being able to chat like this, I don't think you've been negative. I think it's, I think it's a a wholesome and appropriate view of individual animals and knowledge and how you feel and where it's going and what we're doing. So I don't think you sort of clap at the end of these things, but if I could give you a hug, given we're talking virtually and we're about an hour from one another, um, thank you. I really, really appreciate that today and I hope you have an enjoyable rest of the day. That's all from us today. Thank you so much for our listeners, for joining us for this podcast episode. Recognition and thanks to the Foundation of National Parks and Wildlife and the International Fund of Animal Welfare for supporting Two Green Threads. For more information about Two Green Threads, you can visit www.twogreenthreads.org. Our website contains resources and inspiration developed to support our wildlife volunteers in building mental and physical resilience, both as individuals and as a community, so that we can continue caring for and making a difference to the welfare of our native animals for the long term.